0: This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are, in general, to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you, but I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Welcome back to our 43rd podcast in our series in the first half of American history. In our 42nd podcast, we discussed the way America was simply desperate, clearly feeling the tension that civil war could break out at any point between not just the North and the South, but throughout the country, between states' right advocates and those that believe in a more powerful, unified central government. We also, of course, had those abolitionists, that were also against the slave institutions of the South. Even though by 1860, again, only 25% of Southerners owned slaves, that didn't diffuse the attention because it wasn't just about slavery. A future civil war was going to be also about states' rights as well. So in that 40-second podcast, we outlined what the Wilmot Proviso was and why ultimately that didn't work We looked at how popular sovereignty, popular by its title, not popular by the way it was perceived, by both abolitionists as well as states' rights advocates. We also looked at the impact of Uncle Tom's cabin as well, and how her engravings, or modern-day form of pictures, sensationalized the issue. We looked at political realignment with the Kansas-Nebraska Act as well, and then finally, violence erupting between the factions. I read to you an excerpt from Time Magazine on basically what became known as Bleeding Kansas. I also alluded to a book called American Sphinx by Joseph Ellis when he wrote on page 320 the way that President Jefferson clearly recognized the chances that civil war might break out at some point in his lifetime or long after he died. In this case, of course, it would have been long after he died, as Thomas Jefferson died on July 4th, 1826. But two years before he died, he attempted to try to look at a potential economic solution to eradicating the institution of slavery. On page 320, Joseph Ellis writes, quote, in 1824 he, meaning Thomas Jefferson, compiled the fullest analysis of the demographic and economic facts he ever attempted and calculated that it would take 900 million dollars to free and then deport the 1.5 million slaves in the United States over a 25-year period. The daunting character of those costs, Jefferson acknowledged, made it, quote, impossible to look at this question a second time, end quote. Moreover, to make matters worse, the 1.5 million slaves would have doubled in number during the time the plans were being implemented. And many of the freed slaves when offered passage to Africa or the West Indies would surely say we will not go. Again, that's in Jefferson's own writing that Ellis quotes, again on page 320 of his book called American Sphinx, the character of Thomas Jefferson. So again, just backing up and, and supporting this idea that there just seemed to be no plausible solution to eradicating the institution of slavery without simultaneously causing a civil war. We looked at how in that podcast, the way the Republican party, a brand new political party came up out of this, desperate to find a solution. We looked at the impact of the Dred Scott case, where Chief Justice Roger Taney thought he would be the one to forevermore remove any doubt about the legitimacy of the institution of slavery, thereby by default eliminating any future tension, when in fact the exact opposite was true. We looked at the Lincoln-Douglas debates, and then finally with recognizing that Douglas won that Senate seat, despite the fact of both what Lincoln and Douglas were debating about. So in this podcast, our 43rd, we're going to look at now basically what's known as the road to disunion. And it would start with yet another outbreak of violence, this time on the East Coast, though, or in the eastern half of the United States, with what became known as John Brown's raid of October 16th, 1859. John Brown took a pledge along with his sons against slavery in a church that he visited in Hudson, Ohio. And after taking that pledge, Brown, along with his five sons and 22 supporters, raided a federal weapons arsenal in Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Brown banked on being joined by rebellious slaves as he marched into the South with all of these stolen weapons, hoping that the slaves would join him in spreading the insurrection. However, and needless to say, Southerners quickly defeated Brown However, the Southerners also realized that that was a proactive move by white Northerners. While the move or the efforts might have been benevolent on behalf of John Brown, it was destined to failure before it even began. The bottom line is is that any type of military insurrection cannot be banked on a group of people that have no knowledge of what you're doing suddenly learning of it and immediately joining your cause, even if it's a cause they believe in. It did not happen with the Spanish Armada of 1588, where King Philip thought that the Catholics in England would join with the Spanish to overthrow the Anglican Church of England. It didn't work then. It didn't work here with John Brown. It's not going to work a little over 100 years from now with the Bay of Pigs fiasco in 102 years when John F. Kennedy anticipated having revolutionaries in Cuba join the American Armed Forces in overthrowing Fidel Castro. You have to communicate with the party that you'll be joining forces with. John Brown's raid was the ultimate in what you don't do because John Brown and his supporters couldn't communicate with the slaves. Sure, they understood many words in English, but their limited vocabulary only pertained to the work that they had to do and the language amongst themselves to try to survive day in and day out. But understanding military terms, understanding how to use a gun, sure, they've seen a gun, but they were always at the receiving end of that. And now suddenly they're going to be taught to hold one in a matter of minutes and then use it to defend themselves and the abolitionists. Again, an idea that might have been wonderful in thought, great on paper, but horrible in reality. But I'm going to put my listeners here into an uncomfortable position and i'm going to put you into the shoes i'm going to put you behind the desk in the oval office of our 15th president of the united states president james buchanan when he learns about john brown's attempted raid how do you handle it the attorneys general throughout the states much less the attorney general of the united states is very reluctant in how to handle john brown He's considered a hero by many northerners, by many abolitionists, of course, and Quakers and pacifists, but of course, he's an outright demon and enemy by Southerners and states rights activists. You're President Buchanan. What do you do with John Brown? He did the only thing he felt politically he had the option of doing. He sentenced Brown not only to being executed, but being publicly hung or hanged out in public for everybody to see. Buchanan needed to drive the point home that this type of insurrection was not only not going to be allowed, it would not even be endorsed by the United States government, and the United States government would not look the other way on this. However, the damage to the relationship between the frayed threads remaining of the relationship between the North and the South were being worn down even further now. That brings us to the election of 1860, where the South, believe it or not, hoped to lose the election to that unknown Republican by the name of Abraham Lincoln. Why? Because then that could give them a political reason to pull away from the Union. The South would have a political reason slash justification to secede from the Union. As we know, Republicans who nominated Lincoln, please know just to dispel the myth that Abraham Lincoln was not the first candidate for president of the republican party because the republicans ran a candidate back in 1856 by the name of john c fremont running against james buchanan of course fremont lost to buchanan now lincoln the next republican candidate and most likely the last if they lost, as they would no longer have the funds able to support themselves and hold out another four years for another presidential election, the Republicans nominated Lincoln. Why? Because Lincoln, by and large, had nothing else to lose. He had one of the worst, if not the worst, political resume of any of the politicians in Washington. Please note also to dispel the myth that Lincoln did not win by a landslide. He didn't even win by a majority. Lincoln waltzed into the White House with only 39% of the vote. Why? Because the 61% was divided amongst the other candidates that were running for office. John Bell, John Breckinridge, and Stephen Douglas. The three of them split the non-Republican vote, as the three candidates' only common denominator was that they were not a Republican. But in having those many candidates running for office, it ultimately destroyed their chances of winning the presidency in 1860. It's the, arguably one of the first times that this happened in American political history. It certainly will not be the last. America will see the election of the 42nd president of the United States, Bill Clinton, largely win because the Republicans were divided amongst two Republican candidates or Republican leaning candidates, George H.W. Bush, the, the incumbent, as well as the rising star Ross Perot. Eight years later, the Democrats would suffer from a split when Ralph Nader ran against Al Gore in the election of 2000. Sure, Nader didn't take many votes, but George W. Bush literally won by an eyelash margin. Had Nader not run, that could have potentially given Al Gore won more state, which is all he needed to win the presidency. So again, it does happen that a candidate wins despite not getting 50% or more of the vote. Uh, Donald Trump didn't get 50% back in the election of 2016. So as I say, it does happen. State secession, therefore, with the news of the Republican victory, state secession would begin. However, please remember, that not all states were united in secession. South Carolina was the first to pull away from the Union in December of 1860, once it was confirmed that Lincoln would win the presidency. By February 1st, seven states had seceded. That was enough for the seven states to form a separate country called the Confederate States of America. Rather than having its stars and stripes, its flag would be the Stars and Bars. On February 16th, 1861, they would elect Confederate President Jefferson Davis for their president of the Confederate States. Please remember, again, what is not commonly known is even though I am well into February now of 1861, a lot of people believe. So all of this is happening while Lincoln now is newly in his infancy president. Wrong. Lincoln's not has not even been inaugurated yet. Inauguration day started with Washington's second term to be d- determined date of March 4th. It would remain that date until the presidential inauguration of Franklin Roosevelt for his second term after winning the election for a second time in 1936 against Democrat Al Landon, he was inaugurated on January 20th, 1830, 1937. That was the first time we went from the March 4th date, inauguration date, to January 20th. So James Buchanan is still president while the seven states are pulling away from the union coalescing around a constitution that they are writing, electing their own president, putting Buchanan into lame duck status as his administration quickly deteriorated, to the point that the press was actually fawning around Lincoln, who was putting together his papers and gathering his family to make the move out east, asking about what his thoughts were upon news of the seven states pulling away from the union and the election of Jefferson Jefferson Davis. Lincoln was smart enough to know, both personally, as well as, of course, a respectful man, smart enough to know you don't comment. As he said, as Lincoln said to the press, we have one president at a time, and I am not president right now. James Buchanan is president of the United States. You have to take those questions to him. Now, within the Lincoln administration that is being put together back in Illinois as they're planning their trip out east to be the first Republican president to be inaugurated on March 4th of 1861, please note that he, he, Lincoln, believed that the slavery issue had to come to a head one way or another. However, Unbeknownst to most in modern times, Lincoln was ready to support whichever side of the issue had a better chance at preserving the Union. Remember, as Lincoln said, this war is not about slavery, but about cessation, about a state's right to pull away from the Union when there is a political disagreement. But wait a minute, you ask. I remember learning in grammar school, social studies, high school history, maybe even my American history class, that Lincoln was against slavery. Personally, Lincoln was repulsed by slavery. But he was not for accepting freed African Americans either. And I'll put that I a support that was writing from him, in a few moments. The Washington or the uh, growing Lincoln administration finally left Springfield, Illinois, where Lincoln and his wife had their home and made their way to Washington, D.C. However, he had a stop to make as the caravan was was carrying the soon-to-be 16th president of the United States, and he made a pit stop to see someone that he had not seen in a while in Indiana. When he got out of the carriage, nobody knew where he was going or who was inside this house that he insisted on seeing. His wife, Mary and the kids, they went separately for security reasons in case Lincoln was harassed in any way. He didn't want his wife and kids to see it. So he sent them incognito On a separate mission, a separate way to Washington, D.C. Lincoln stopped at this house in Indiana that clearly was not on the template about where they were going. It was not on the itinerary. And Lincoln ordered everybody to remain seated in the carriages or on the backs of horses, other horses, while he went in and paid a visit. The visit didn't take long. But when Lincoln walked out of the house, The few witnesses that later testified or letter wrote the way they heard a blood-curdling shriek from the house from what sounded like a woman who was obviously shaken to the core by Lincoln's visit. Lincoln himself clearly was visibly shaken as well. It would not be for some time that people would find out that who Lincoln had stopped to visit was none other than somebody that was truly beloved to him his stepmother his stepmother upon hearing the news that lincoln had won the presidency broke down and cried and as she said to her stepson who she loved as her own son just as much as lincoln loved her as his own mother when she learned of lincoln's election she looked at him and pleaded with him to resign the presidency before he even takes the oath of office When asked why, she looked at him squarely in the eye and said, because if you take the oath of office, you will be America's first president to be assassinated. And as we know, that's exactly what happened. From there, Lincoln made his way to Washington, D.C. The closer that the motorcade, if you want to call it that, the motorcade got to Washington, D.C., the more that the Uh, evidence was gathering that there were possibly going to be attempts on Lincoln's life, as well as, of course, from the dire prediction of his stepmother, that Lincoln actually got into Washington, D.C. in the back of a covered Conestoga wagon in what essentially was a garbage truck and he got into a wooden box in order to keep the garbage off of him with a little vent for him to be able to breathe. Interesting that he entered Washington, D.C. in a wooden box breathing because he would leave Washington, D.C. in a wooden box not breathing. Not long after taking the oath of office, as we know, Fort Sumner in Charleston, South Carolina was shelled by Confederate troops in order to seize the arsenal. It was a short battle, with no injuries. However, at that point, the Confederacy had expanded to 11 states. This is when Lincoln realized that the Civil War had already started, essentially even before he took the oath of office. Even though he was personally repulsed by slavery, he was still not accepting of the idea that this institution of slavery should be outlawed. Remember that Lincoln took the oath of office with seven states pulling away from the Union. And then it went to 11 states after the shelling of Fort Sumner. Remember that we can look back and know that the Confederacy never expanded beyond those 11 states. But that's a luxury President Lincoln would never have. Lincoln never knew if more border states from on the Union side would join the Southern cause. Remember that question mark, will always be keeping him up at night. When I'm talk about again, about Lincoln being personally repulsed by slavery, but not politically, the individual that sheds light on this is Michael Beschloss in his book called Presidential Courage. On page 109 into 110, Beschloss writes, during his debates with Stephen Douglas in 1858, Lincoln said he opposed moving toward, quote, the social and political equality of the white and black races, end quote. Since those debates, Lincoln had not changed his mind even when he was president, hoping to blunt conservative anger when they realized that hundreds of thousands of former slaves might enter the North upon slavery being eliminated, the president revived his old idea that the best solution to the race problem would be to encourage former slaves to depart for some colony elsewhere, perhaps in Latin America, to appease reactionaries. He called black leaders to the White House in August of 1862, and reminded them that they were suffering injustice in America. I kid you not, that's on page 110. That Lincoln called black leaders to the White House and reminded them that they were suffering injustice in America, as if they might not have been getting that idea, right? He said, black people suffer from living with whites, while the whites, quote, suffer from your presence. End quote. It was better for both to separate. Lincoln then said that there would be no civil war but for your race among us, end quote. Now, even though he eventually went through with the Emancipation Proclamation, after signing the document, he had never felt, quote, more certain that I was doing right, end quote. Still, he worried about Northerners who were passionate for the Union, but not for abolition. To mollify them, he had declared that if he could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it, End quote. Again, that's a side of Lincoln that for the most part has been put on the back burner, or in some cases taken off the stove entirely, as he gets put on the pedestal largely because of the Emancipation Proclamation and his assassination. I'm not here to take him off of that. However, I do want to remind my listeners, again, as I pledged to do from my very first podcast, I'm going to give you both sides, both sides to the events we discuss, both sides to the people we discuss. Again, I'm not trying to take Lincoln anything away from him, but I'm reminding my listeners that he was human. Lincoln was also a man of his times, and he was a politician. There's no way around that. So please know that, again, Lincoln, while personally being repulsed by slavery, politically, he was happy to keep the institution in place, even though he knew that at some point it had to come to a head. When? Who knows when, as long as it's not on my watch. Ironically enough, Every president had been saying that going all the way back to Andrew Jackson, our seventh president. Remember that Lincoln is inaugurated as our 16th president. Since number seven, we have not had a two term president. You might say, well, yeah, Lincoln is, but in 1861, we don't know that. And neither does Lincoln. And if history is any kind of a teacher and indicator of the future, why would Lincoln be a two-term president when going back for the past almost four decades, no president ever wins re-election? It seemed like Andrew Jackson and the presidents before him, with the sole exception of John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams, who were two-term presidents, that the idea of winning a second term, I guess that ship sailed. Because again, we don't know if Lincoln will win a second term right now, as of April, 1861, with four more states joining the Confederate States of America, the last thing on Lincoln's mind right now is reelection. Rather, he's got to figure out now what to do about a country that just formed on, its, on our now southern border that is going to war with it. When we come back, we'll begin our first of several podcasts as we discuss what becomes known as the American Civil War. Please know that like the American Revolution, I'm not going to take my listeners battle by battle by battle. Rather, I'm going to talk about a political analysis and military analysis of both the Union and the Confederacy. I will then give highlights of the major battles and what humankind learned as a result, and then spend more time on the resolution of the conflict and how America attempted to move forward with an eventual 623,000 casualties. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com. Email me with any questions or comments you might have or book recommendations. If you like what we discuss, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.